Want to get practice management software for free? Practice management that has client management, client collaboration, task management, timesheets and billing, document management, financial insights, and books review? All these practice management features are for free up to five users. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Zoho Practice, later in the episode. Ever wished you could earn CPE credits while on the go? Introducing Earmark, the app revolutionizing the way accountants earn their CPE. Just listen to your favorite accounting and tax podcasts, whether you're driving to work, working out, or even doing chores. After you're done listening, take a quick quiz. Score 70% or higher, you've earned your CPE. It's that easy. Plus, with Earmark, you're not just ticking a box. You're actually learning valuable insights from top accounting podcasts. So why wait? Download the Earmark app now on iOS or Android and transform your listening time into CPE credits. Make the most of your day and stay ahead with Earmark. Yeah, you got to change the financial incentives, right? Financial incentives are what drive the world. And so, like, we just have them totally set up the wrong way. And and no amount of ethics training can counter it, in my opinion. Because we do a lot of ethics training. It doesn't make a difference. People just cheat on the ethics exams. <laughs> Coming to you weekly from the OnPay Recording Studio. Hello, and welcome back to the show. I'm Blake Oliver. I'm David Leary. And David, I got a present in the mail yesterday. The Arizona CPA Society, as you know, did a survey back in the fall on the 150-hour rule. And I have eagerly, eagerly awaited the results of this survey. And I have been emailing the president over at the Arizona CPA Society. And he so, is- So he delivered you a, a package with the results? Like, you, like it, a, a sealed briefcase? Well, like it's, How it, did you get this? Well, he, he wouldn't reply to my emails- but I do subscribe. You know, I am a member of the Arizona CPA Society, so I get the magazine. So Blake and is holding up a magazine for those yeah, of you listening. This is the latest issue of AZ CPA, the January slash February 2024 edition. And uh, I actually wasn't even reading it. My dad came over for happy hour and he picked it up and started reading it because he's that kind of person. Even though he's not an accountant, he, he reads through my <laughs> CPA Society magazines. And he opens it up and he sees... This article, The Future of CPA Licensure, Insights from an ASCPA Member Survey on the 150-Hour Requirement. And there's a chart here, the very first chart. So, so before you get into the chart, I just want to make sure I'm framing this properly. This, this survey results you've been pestering people about for a, almost a full year almost got completely missed. Like this just went into the pile of paperwork of right. magazines. Yes. And beyond so just, bath gift cards and all that stuff. Just by chance, my dad was over and opened up the magazine, which I, you know, don't always read. I should, but I don't always because I'm online, right? I'm not reading this. Like, yes. this is paper, right? Uh, so I almost missed it for this week. But thank, thank. Your dad that, saved the show. He shaved, yeah. saved the show. And that's really all. That's all thanks to Datamatics because I was doing a webinar with Datamatics yesterday. Hitendra Patil, who is a prolific writer on CPA Trendlines, invited me to do a webinar with him, and he sent me a gift basket. And the gift basket had so many snacks, I told my parents, hey, come on over and help me eat all these <laughs> snacks. I'm trying to lose weight. So uh, so let me get to the chart, because this is very, very exciting, dear okay. listeners. Uh, as you know, if you listen to this show even somewhat infrequently, you know that we uh, are passionate advocates for an alternative pathway to CPA licensure that does not require a ridiculous five years of education, uh, which I personally believe creates very little value because most CPAs do not need the content 
of that extra fifth year of education. And it appears that you all agree with me, at least the folks who responded to the Arizona survey agree. And, you know, Arizona is a battleground state. We're pretty balanced, right? 50-50 kind of state. So I feel like this could be representative of the whole country. Um, and I don't see and why it's it wouldn't significant. be. We're a big enough state where there's enough members where this is not a survey of 10 members. It's, it's no, big, this, right? I, I mean, it, I think like there's got to be tens of thousands of CPAs in Arizona at least, right? So, yep. um, so the question here, question one, is do you believe it would be beneficial to the profession to provide alternative pathways to certification where 150 hours of college education is one option, but not the only option? So do you support an alternative to the current regime? Yes, 81% said yes. 81% of CPAs, well, we don't know if everyone was a CPA who responded, but every 81% of those who responded said, yes, we need an alternative pathway. That exceeds because for the last year and a half, two years, you've been saying it's probably 80% of the profession. So yes. it exceeds your guess. It Slightly. Slightly. It, now, is it 20% are opposed? No, because 10% are unsure. Less than 9% say no. 8.76% say no. So fewer than 10%, less than 10% of the profession thinks that we should keep things the way it is. Now, if that doesn't tell you that the leaders at NASBA and AICPA who have been opposing this are out of touch, I mean, I don't know what else does, right? Yeah. So if you want to be on the right side of history, dear CPA society leaders or administrators or anyone listening to this, you know, pay attention to this survey. And I'm not lying. I'm going to put it right here in front of the camera so those who are on the live stream can see. Because as far as you know, this is not digital anywhere. <laughs> like We can't link to it. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't tried to find it. Uh, maybe, maybe, me. I don't know if they have a digital version of this magazine. So, so one of you sent me a, two texts last night with pictures from the magazine, and I can't. I can kind of read it. I zoom in a little bit, but I think it had stats, and maybe you could discuss this now that you have the magazine in your hand. Where they were at, I think this question kind of asked people: Do you notice a difference between somebody with 120 hours versus 150 when it comes yes. to their work? Can you right. kind of clarify that? Right. That's the question. Uh, is also. Does having that extra 30 semester hours, that extra year of education, actually make you a better CPA? And all of the academic studies that I have seen say, no, there is no discernible difference. There's no measurable difference in the quality, which kind of makes sense considering that most CPAs who are licensed today didn't have to earn 150 semester hours of education. And you can't tell really a difference between those and the ones who have to, like me. So. The question here is, um, when looking at staff who recently graduated with an accounting degree, which of the following statements best describes their preparedness to be a CPA? There is no noticeable difference in preparedness level between staff that have accounting degrees with 120 or 150 credit hours. Over half, 51%, said there is no noticeable difference. Staff with 150 credit hours have a slightly higher preparedness level than staff with 120 hours. So slightly higher preparedness. Uh, round up, eight, let's say 18% said that. There's a slightly higher preparedness. Staff with 150 credit hours have a noticeably higher preparedness level than staff with 120. Only 10.7%, so call it 11%, said that. 20% said none of the above or I don't know. So 
only 10, 12, 11% say that the staff with 150 credit hours have a noticeably higher preparedness level. So, so, so I hire 100 accounting graduates with 150 hours. Mm-hmm. And only 10 of them are really better than the 100 non. Well, no, I mean, this is just no. saying that like the people who hire accountants into firms when you're hiring. Even notice it. Yeah. Only 10% say that there's a noticeably higher difference in preparedness, and 18% say there's a slight, slightly higher preparedness. And 51%, so more than half, say there's no, no, there's no difference whatsoever. Right, that's, yeah. Which so makes sense. that's so, quote-unquote, important, you would like, you'd think if somebody got it, you'd be like, oh, it's obvious they did that. They must have got the extra education. Yeah. Well, consider how much money we as a profession spend on this extra education. It's, I calculated that it's $20 billion a year that students have to spend to earn that one-year master's. If you count opportunity cost, and if you count the cost of the credits, and you count the cost of the housing, all of that, right? Yep. It's, it's billions of dollars. Even if I'm overestimating, it's still billions of dollars. And that opportunity cost is shared with the firms who don't have access to the staff because they're in it in school. school or they're working reduced hours because they can't work full time and do school. There's another question here about the talent shortage. Are firms facing a shortage of talent? We say yes. All the surveys by Accounting Today and CPA Practice Advisor and CPA Trendline say yes. And this survey also says yes. 55.56% so just over half say that they have a shortage of both CPAs and accountants. 13% say they have a shortage of CPAs. And 10% say they have a shortage of accountants. That includes non-licensed and non-CPA path employees. And I think the important stat here is that only 22% say they have no talent challenges at this time. So again, it's like we have this 80%, 20% in this survey, and there's only 20%, about 20% of firms say we have plenty of staff, and, 80% need And was need this of. survey only to firms? Because I, I, I imagine state of Arizona, a percentage of this, my understanding is more than half the members of the Arizona CPA Society aren't even in public county, they're private accountants. So was this survey right. to just firm people at firms or was this in uh, general? It, I, it, I think it was sent out to all the members. So that would be, you know, industry folks too. And it says organization, not just firms, like the, okay, the way the question is okay. phrased. Yeah. So that's a good point, David. This is not just firms. This is all organizations. Wow. Isn't that incredible? There's some member feedback here because there was the option to give comments, oh, free text comments. Verbatims. Comments. Yeah. Well, they, they didn't, they, they didn't quote, any good ones? but they summarized oh. some of the feedback. Okay. Um, Several respondents propose replacing the 150-hour requirement with years of experience in the field. Suggestions include experience-based or additional testing, emphasizing critical thinking skills and expertise in specific areas like IT or advisory services. A recurring theme is the importance of on-the-job experience, with suggestions for work experience requirements beyond mere time akin to an apprenticeship. I like that. I think we should just swap the extra education with work experience. Just go back to the the way it used to be, or offer that as an option. Many argue that passing the CPA exam should be the primary criterion for certification regardless of education hours. 
stressing its relevance as a measure of competence. That's fair, right? If the CPA exam is in fact a true judge of like whether you have the knowledge to be a CPA, then why do we require people to have credits on a transcript? A considerable number view the rule as an unnecessary financial burden, suggesting a disconnect between education and practical application. And as one of our listeners pointed out in the live stream, many point out that the additional 30 hours of education may not be beneficial because these credit hours can cover any discipline, potentially lacking relevance to accounting or other courses essential for becoming a proficient CPA. It's viewed negatively in terms of recruitment, deterring students and leading employers to hire without certification. And uh, yeah, that's it. Well done, Arizona CPA Society. Uh, I would love to interview you, Oliver Yandel, president of the Arizona CPA Society, on this topic. Please reply to my emails. So obviously you have not found this digital yet or haven't searched. I haven't looked for it online. Take some photos of it and put it on your. Oh Twitter. yeah, yeah, heck yeah! I, I've been yeah. a little busy this morning because I had to take my car to the shop. So, but I'm going to post this all over LinkedIn. You bet. Are you kidding? I mean, this is David. This feels so good because it's like when your theory is proven true. I, I've said I feel like 80 percent, just based on who I talk to, I feel like 80 percent of CPAs are against this, and it's true in Arizona anyway. This episode of The Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Zoho Practice. Introducing Zoho Practice, the all-in-one practice management platform built to streamline accounting firm operations. Zoho Practice saves you time chasing clients by automating reminders and requests to get you the documents and clarifications you need when you need them. Staff and clients stay connected through a centralized communication hub to resolve accounting queries faster. Seamless timesheets and billing translate billable hours into invoices with just a few clicks, and robust document management means no more digging through piles of paper to find what you need. Beyond workflow efficiency, Zoho Practice also enables real-time financial visibility across clients thanks to seamless integrations with Zoho's accounting tools, allowing you to gain actionable insights to identify and resolve reporting inconsistencies quickly. Whether ensuring tax compliance, monitoring cash flow, or simplifying collaboration, Zoho Practice is the unified solution to manage all aspects of an accounting practice. To explore how Zoho Practice can save time, enhance oversight, and help your firm work smarter for free, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash Zoho. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash Z-O-H-O. So I know you said you were going to, uh, you've applied to be the president of NASBA. Yes, I did. I was, well, I don't know if you saw this bubbled up yesterday in the the latest Republican debate. Uh, You know, there's talk about an accountant being in the White House, an accountant being president. Because, do you know, Nikki Haley, who's one of the Republican frontrunners, she isn't an accountant. Now, she never worked as an accountant from what I could tell based on, you know, wiki pages are only good as they are, a Wikipedia page. But since August, she's been using this line, it's time for an accountant in the White House. But she's not an accountant. She has an accounting degree. Oh, she does. She does have an accounting degree, yes. Oh, but she she never. It doesn't look like she ever practiced as an accountant at all. She kind of maybe went the finance route a little bit more. She has a bachelor's of science in accounting and finance from Clemson University. That's cool. So maybe, Blake, you could run for real president one day. So we get an accountant in the White well, House. But the big hubbub is because Ron DeSantis flat out said, we don't need an accountant in the White House. We need a leader in the White House. Implying accountants cannot be leaders is what he's implying. Ouch, Ron. 
You know, he's not doing himself any favors, is he? He's losing the accountant vote. I'm, I, I, I can't vote for Ron DeSantis now, David. I gotta, well, guess I got to vote for Nikki Haley. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like, I, we've talked about this before about politicians that are accountants or understand things differently. Is it okay to blindly just vote for only politicians that are accountants? Like, and just put all your other beliefs and political things aside and just assume because they're an accountant, we're automatically going to get a better situation? Well, given the state of audit in our profession, I don't know if I would do that because the auditors, like if, if this person has a background in audit, <laughs> I would not want them running the country because I just saw yet another, another story about a massive audit failure. This time it was Deloitte uh, in Nigeria. Do you want to talk about audit failures or do you want to talk about, you have this story about Horizon accounting software and a scandal in the UK. Let's We've got... talk about your audit story first, then I'll talk about this other scandal, because this other scandal is a little bit more serious. We can't really make light of it as much, I think. Okay. Um, you... So are you familiar with Hindenburg Research? I love that name, by the way. They're like the the short sellers, right? They're, I think they, they determined something else is a big fraud once, right? Yeah, they've, they've come up with some um, – they had a – We've talked about them on the show, yeah. and they have uncovered some really big like frauds and done reports and, and done short selling and have made a bunch of money on this in the past. And uh, I wish I could remember what it was right now, but I can't. But that's beside the point. So Hindenburg Research accused Nigerian company Tingo Group of fraudulent activities back in June. The company's auditor, Deloitte, was also criticized for approving Tingo's financial statements despite glaring inconsistencies. Now, how glaring are these inconsistencies? Well, uh, it's pretty bad. So you can find this story on Forbes. It is paywalled. So I did subscribe to Forbes as a result. Uh, you're welcome, Forbes. I hope you enjoy my $7 a month. As a result of Hindenburg's report, Tingo's stock dropped by... 80%. The SEC intervened, halting trading. In December, the SEC charged Tingo CEO Dozi Momobuzi with massive fraud. The SEC's civil complaint revealed that Tingo, which claimed to have 462 million in Nigerian banks, only had 50 million. Can we pause here for a second? Because I just want to like the insanity of this. In general, the, the most common form of spam we get is about Money in a Nigerian bank. So like already, everybody's fraud warning should be super alert. So if you're the auditor and like you're going to audit some Nigerian bank-related things, yes. shouldn't already you be on extra <laughs> due diligence? Like it screams fraud just automatically. Yeah, uh, that's a good point, David. So what happened here? Well, okay, so like I said before you so rudely interrupted me. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. I couldn't uh, unwrap my head around it. No, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, so their audited financials said they had $462 million in Nigerian banks. It turns out they only had $50 million. And they got a clean audit from Deloitte. So the question is, where were the auditors? This is almost exactly what happened with Wirecard, where Wirecard was giving fake bank statements to their auditors in Germany. I think it was EY. And EY wasn't checking with the banks to make sure that the money was actually there. It's super basic. Like this is the most fundamental thing. This is what you do as a first year auditor. 
you audit cash and you have to ask, how is it possible that Deloitte audited this company, gave them an unqualified opinion, and the money wasn't there? We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. They quoted Matthias Breuer, an accounting professor at Columbia University's Graduate School of Business. He told Forbes, as outsiders, we'd like to think that auditors are looking for fraud, but fraud detection isn't one of their mandates. Auditors don't go into their work with an adversarial mindset. The mandate isn't to be a whistleblower, and because of that, it's usually insiders and short sellers that uncover these issues. And then the article goes on to mention Ernst & Young's approval of Wirecard's books when, when the money really wasn't there. Um, there's also the infamous 1MDB saga, which caught three of the big four. And of course, you got to remember Arthur Anderson and Enron. But this is even more basic than like what happened with Enron, where it was like really complicated what was going on. This is just like they didn't audit the cash. And Breuer, this professor at Columbia, he's pretty brutal. He says, what's happened in the audit industry is that they've lobbied to do check the box exercises to limit their legal liability. They're just trying to satisfy the auditing standards. They're not necessarily trying to attest to the real economic reality of the business. So you wonder how is it possible that the auditors got the cash balances wrong? And something this year made me understand this better. Apparently, there's a move now to change the auditing standards where you can no longer rely on a negative confirmation. So you have to get positive confirmation of bank balances. Now, what does that mean? Well, can I, can I guess? Because I think we discussed this before. But let's see if I paid attention. Let's see if you learned. paid attention. Did you take the CPE quiz? So, so if I emailed Bank of America and I said, hey, does client X have bank accounts there? And can you verify them? If they never replied, it'd be like, ah, oh, well, I can still accept the audit. But right. now they've changed the law to where the bank has got to reply. I can't just accept a no answer. Yeah. You, so you used to be able to, and I'm not sure if this has changed yet, but the standard has been that like, and you wouldn't send an email, you'd actually send paper mail okay. because that's how this is done. So you'd send a letter to Bank of America and say, Ex-client says they have $100 million in an account with you. Is this correct or not? Reply to us if it's not. And if the bank doesn't reply, then you assume it's right. That's a negative confirmation. Got it. It's ridiculous, right? So client gives you fraudulent bank statements, and then you do a bank confirmation. The bank never replies. Okay, that's how it gets on the financials that way. So thankfully, that is changing. But it's kind of crazy that it's been that way for so long. So now if you don't get confirmation, there's going to have to be additional steps that you do to confirm those balances. Now, here's what's interesting about this whole thing. It wasn't Deloitte in Nigeria that was auditing the books of Tingo. It was Deloitte's Israeli branch that signed off on this. So why would you have auditors in Israel auditing a company in Nigeria? Was the idea to keep the auditors far away from this company so that they didn't uncover the fraud? Why not use auditors in the country? So are these questions that were investigated and asked, or is this you just being rhetorical here? These are questions that the investigative reporter is asking okay, okay. over at Forbes in this article. I mean, $461 million that didn't exist on these financial statements for a public company. 
Ed Ketz, an accounting professor at Penn State's Smeal College of Business, told Forbes in an email, the cash account is the most important balance sheet account and one of the easiest to audit. One wonders how Deloitte Israel could have missed that. Verifying a company's cash is a foundational part of the auditing process and one of the boxes auditors are supposed to check, said Stefani Mason, an accounting professor at Dry House College of Business at DePaul University. In the process of an audit, there are some pretty basic things that should be done, Mason told Forbes. One of those is confirming cash balances by sending a form that goes directly to the client's bank. The standard essentially says that the auditor has to verify the bank account independently. So, I mean, I don't really have words for this. It just seems it just seems like if this keeps happening, like this happens on a regular basis, right? These massive frauds. This is what destroys the reputation of accounting and auditing in the mind of the public because this is what they think of, right? We're not doing our jobs. So we got to clean up our act, right? Auditors need to be independent. They need to be truly independent. They need to do more than checking the box. You know, this is why the U.S. Second Court of Appeals issued a ruling in which it said that audit reports are so general as to be immaterial. We talked about this on the yeah, last episode. Last episode. It's, it's the most scathing thing anyone has ever said about auditors, that their own audit opinions don't matter and are immaterial. So if you want to talk about why we have a talent crisis in accounting, it's the pay and it's the hours, but it's also the lack of meaningful work. Because guess what? Young auditors, they're not stupid. And they know when they do the work, if it's just check the box activities, that it's meaningless. The emperor has no clothes. Everyone can see it, right? And they don't yeah. want to work doing a job just for a paycheck where these are work papers that don't matter. Yeah, where, where, where's the audit engagements finding fraud? I never see those news stories. It's always a reporter or a short seller. It's, it's, it's some other third party that things don't smell. They smell funny, so it gets investigated, right? But yeah. it's never the auditor that finds the fraud for some reason. Like, but the public assumes that's what they should be doing. So then when they get a signed off audited statement, must be safe, must be correct. Yeah. Um, only 4% of frauds are detected by external auditors. Only 4%. Most of the time, it's whistleblowers. Now, you might say, and this is what defenders of the audit profession will say, is that it's not the job of auditors to detect fraud. But you would think that if they were doing a good job of auditing that they would find more frauds yeah. and especially this kind this is this should have been detected very easily at the very beginning of the audit is it a reward like, like so if i find if i'm if i'm a junior staffer in an accounting firm and i find this do i get an attaboy or do i no you look, probably get spanked okay. because you just created a ton of work for the audit team right and that's the problem with the way things are set up, right? These audit firms are designed like to sell an audit opinion. They want an unqualified opinion because if anything comes up, they, ha they have more work to do. And the worst situation is when you can't issue the audit and you have to let the client go because now you can't charge the client for the work you did. So the system we have punishes auditors financially for finding problems. And that's not what you want. You want the auditors to find the problems. You want them to have an incentive to find the problems. And short sellers have a big incentive to find problems because they make a lot of money when they bet <laughs> that a company's stock is going to decline and they issue a report. So you want auditors incentivized like Hindenburg, maybe not in the same way, 
right? You don't want auditors profiting when a company's stock falls, but perhaps if stock exchanges hired them, then they would be more independent of the companies that they audit, and the stock exchanges could uh, incentivize the auditors to like find the bad companies on their listings. Maybe the the big comp, uh, public accounting firms get special tax breaks when they find fraud. They get a they can take an extra deduction on their 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 income for their firm. Maybe I don't know, or the partners get to take it, or I don't know. You know, like you, you're right; it's going to have to be motivated by the money a little bit. Yeah, you got to change the financial incentives, right? Financial incentives are what drive the world. And so, like, we just have them totally set up the wrong way. And and no amount of ethics training can counter it, in my opinion. Because we do a lot of ethics training. It doesn't make a difference. People just cheat on the ethics exams. <laughs> hey, did you watch the Netflix special uh, Painkiller yet? It's Not like yet. It's eight, episode series. And it's about the, the, the sh- slackers, the the family, and the opioid crisis, and uh, OxyContin. It's about the whole thing. But there's a lot of disturbing things that as I'm watching that, I'm like, this is just like the accounting industry. And I think it's probably true for the Food and Drug Administration with restaurants and this, these like people go into the private company, then they move back over to the government agency that's in charge. Mm. And like, we've seen this where the people at the PCAOB, they're buddies with the people that work at the big four, then they move back and forth and you see that dance, but watch that from an accounting point of view. And it's a little disturbing because you're like, oh my goodness, like we're, we're, we're close to this like behavior. It's, it's, it's disturbing a little bit. I want to get to this story about the post office in the UK. Before that, I want to do a little uplifting story. So here's some, can I do an uplifting story first then? You go first. You do yours. Okay. So I discovered a new website that's starting to become a little bit of a favorite. It's actually, it's um, it's a certified pastry aficionado CPA. Certified pastry aficionado? Aficionado. So it's certifiedpastryaficionado.com. Um, Sharon, she's a certified pastry aficionado or a CPA, but she's also a real CPA based in Atlanta. So she has all these great recipes and she posts everything, you know, for example, like everything focaccia. She made focaccia that has like seasoning from bagel, everything seasoning. So check out the site. It's a feel good story. I I think, uh, you know, I like it's it's that positive association to the word CPA. Are you sharing your screen? Oh, let me share the screen on this. I want to see what this looks like. And while you do that, I want to show everyone my CPA placard, uh, which says Blake Oliver CPA. And under that cello playing accountant. My father-in-law got me this when I became a CPA. It's one That's of those great. blocks you put on your desk. Now, I don't, I don't have anyone that comes into my office, uh, to, and I, I don't need a name card on my desk, so I, I put it behind me. Yeah, so here's Sharon, and Sharon's bio, she talks about, welcome to Certified Pastry Aficionado, CPA for short. My name is Sharon, and yes, you guessed it, a CPA. That's great. That stands for Certified Public Accountant. So we have some good positive association with the word accountant. Uh, lots of cool recipes in here. We can uh, a lot of bakery type stuff. Yeah, it's it all looks well, amazing. So, you know, one cool. of the criticism of CPA firm websites is uh, that you know they all seem to have recipes on their blogs. So this is this is an example of a recipe website where perhaps you could put some financial advice on the blog. Sneak it in. Now it's funny thing she has like a a, a menu. I had a monitor thing that says cookbooks, which I don't know if you want that associated with you. Cook the books. <laughs> Cook the books. So I'll stop sharing. 
This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have three, four, maybe five business entities, 20 or so checking accounts, and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going to a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks and had to create payroll checking. Again, just a few clicks and I instantly have access to my ACH info to give my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay for your firm and client, Head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash relay. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y. All right, my turn for some good news. The headline here is Tsunami Miracle Baby, now 19, pursues accounting degree. 19 years ago, when a 9.1 magnitude earthquake hit the west coast of northern Sumatra, Indonesia, S. Thulashi was just a 22-day-old baby. On that day, the waves raced 600 kilometers from Sumatra to Penang at 800 kilometers per hour. Thulashi was sleeping on a mattress at her family cafe on the beach when the first one came and swept her out to sea. A second wave came and miraculously sent her back to shore. She made world headlines, sleeping throughout the whole episode without a single drop of seawater on her body, earning her the nickname Tsunami Miracle Baby. Speaking to the New Straits Times, Thulashi shared her gratitude for her survival and honored the 37 lives lost at Pontai, Miami. And she's now pursuing a degree in accounting, and she helps out at her parents' Seaside Cafe. That's great. Was she in like a vessel? Like how did she not get any water on her? She was sleeping on a mattress on the beach. And it just happened to float perfectly. It it floated. Because, you know, people think like tsunamis in the movies are these giant waves, like surf waves, right? But they're not. It's just the water level suddenly rises. So the water came in. It didn't swamp her mattress, and she floated. Amazing. Isn't that incredible? Truly a miracle. Truly a miracle. I mean, that is. So that's your um, feel-good news in accounting for the week. Now let's get to the really depressing stuff. David, you have a horrible awful story that made me feel terrible. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's just terrible what, what what's happened to these people in the UK due to accounting software not working properly. It's put people in jail. It's ruined lives. Somebody committed yeah. suicide. And so I you know, so we've been doing this podcast for 6 years now and we never talked about the story. We never saw it because this story's been taking place for the last 20 years prior to us doing the podcast. And then nothing kind not it wasn't really much in the news the last 4 or 5 years. But now it's bumped up into our radar and into the news this week because British TV, uh, the new British TV channel, ITV, broadcasted a a four-part drama series called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. So this is a documentary series that was on TV about this whole thing. About this whole thing. And that just got broadcast last week or this week, and things have been happening daily. So since the first episode... uh, was aired, dozens of new victims have started contacting lawyers to appeal their convictions. 
piling on the already, let's think about the math on this, thousands that have been accused of post office branch managers, 700 wrongly handed out criminal convictions, numerous bankruptcies, divorces, and four people even took their own lives, Blake, because of this okay. issue. Okay, so you said this has been happening for decades. Walk me, take I, take me back to the beginning. What is- I what? got it. So, uh, so here's the story. So first we'll set the table a little bit on this, right? Okay. So you have Fujitsu. So a lot of accountants, this, listeners here in the States, a lot of people are familiar with their scanners. Yeah, I got a ScanSnap, right? Fujitsu ScanSnap. Scan yeah. yeah, Fujitsu ScanSnap. Well, they're a $20 billion Japanese tech giant, maybe $24 billion. They're monstrous. But they own a lot of software companies all over the world. One of these companies is a UK company that made accounting software called Horizon. And arguably, it wasn't accounting software. It was probably more of an enterprise point of sale system. Okay. Right? So you have this one part of the story is the software, the point it, of sale it system. It has accounting features. Accounting features, yep. And then you have the UK uh, post office. And so the post office, the way they run it, they have smaller branches, and they almost feel like franchisees. Like, so if you're the manager a, a sub post man or a manager of the small branch, under the term of your contract, Blake, operators are liable for the financial losses. So that's why it feels more like a franchise, right? You're, you're taking the responsibility running this smaller right. postal branch, right? And, and so I have to make sure that I collect the proper amount of, of postage for the letters that I'm taking in through my office. Whatever services are selling, stamps, yeah. who knows, right? Okay. Um, so... You know, in the olden days, they all ran pen, paper, paper receipts. Anybody's been running these for decades, probably hundreds of years in the UK. were probably ran this way. Okay. Uh, in the late '90s, you know, when computers started coming around, they uh, rolled out an accounting point of sale system called Horizon. So that is this company that Fujitsu owns. So basically, the the point of sale would give the main post office visibility to all the revenue due to them. Right? by totaling up all the transactions in the smaller branches, which kind of makes sense. Like you'd want, yeah. from an accounting perspective, you'd want to know that information. Right. But the system was buggy. Hundreds and hundreds of bugs. Super buggy system. Two of the bugs were bad enough that they even got names. Right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess this up because it's named after a village in Scotland, but it's the Dalmelinton bug. D-A-L-L-M-E-L-I-N-G-T-O-N bug. But anyways, so the reason it's named that is that's where the first victim fell prey to it. So here's the bug. Okay. So you're if you've ever rung up a sale on a point of sale before, you finish the sale, you hit done, or total, right? Yeah. You, you, you finalize the sale. The screen would just freeze. So what are you going to do, Blake, as somebody using a computer when the screen freezes? What's the first thing you do? Um, reboot, you hit the enter key. Or... You hit the enter key again, right? A couple times. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you hit the enter key. I'll hit the enter key. Well, every time you hit the enter key, it was logging another sale to the ledger. So I'm trying to get my screen to unfreeze. I'm hitting the button a few times. It finally does, but I, and I don't realize that I've entered multiple transactions now. Ten, exactly. Duplicate so transactions. Duplicate transactions to register. Okay. And so. And so, for example, the first operator that discovered this, 24,000 pounds they were accused of stealing because it recorded all these fake, these incorrect transactions that never happened. Then they have another one called the calendar square bug, which is even worse because it's the underlying database was just creating duplicate transactions. Just on its own. Just on its own. There's a bug. Okay. It's creating duplicate transactions. So if you think about it, you have thousands of ledgers or sub-ledgers for all these 
sub post office with thousands, if not tens of thousands, errant transactions. That according to, so, according to a 2015 testimony, the post office to the House of Commons said there's no functionality in Horizon at either a branch post office or Fujitsu to edit, manipulate, or remove the transaction data once it's been recorded in branch accounts. So they they were claiming in 2015. So they rolled this out in 1999. Yeah. In 2015, they were testifying saying nobody could ever edit and fix this, these problems. So they're claiming. Uh, four years later, they term, determined it was untrue, and they determined that Fujitsu could access the account in an unrestricted, unaudited access. So do you see the problem here? Like the bug, the actual issue yeah, that happened? So, so you're creating duplicate transactions. The sub post offices, the people running these post offices, are they've got to send the money to the post office, right? Yep. In, and so the post office is saying, you didn't send us enough money. You owe us lots of money, right? Exactly. Because remember the and, contract you signed that said you're financially responsible? Right. And, right. and you're stealing from us. Yes. So for a decade plus, the post office destroyed thousands of people's lives. Um, so, accusing so, them of theft, demanding they repay the money. They worked with the UK police to put people in jail for theft. How many people are we talking about? Um, so about 700, it's, it's, it's about 3,000. 700 were convicted. Uh, people were put in jail. Um, there's suicides, divorces, bankruptcies. It's, it's, it's very broad. It's, it's shocking how long this went on. And the, the other shocking part of it, of course, the post office Fujitsu were informed about the bugs a long time ago. And they didn't fix it. And didn't they didn't fix it. What did they not connect the fact that there were these duplicate transactions and then the criminal prosecutions? And I mean, well, yeah. And, and so in 2006, a tech savvy branch operator, he happened to have a computer science degree and he was like an earlier tech adopter. So he rolled out his own point of sale at one time, some DOS based point of sale. And a couple branches had this DOS based point of sale. And just like anybody doing good technology rollout, you would run both side by side. So in 2006, he ran both point of sales side by side and discovered the problem with the double recording that was happening. He went up all the support channels, wind up getting to like a third tier at Fujitsu and got a reply back that said, we managed to replicate the bug. We know about it. He asked Fujitsu when it was going to warn the network of sub postmasters, like let everybody know this bug exists. And they said, no, we won't do that. We'll just let it carry on. So they refused to tell all the other locations about this. And then, coincidentally, of course, he was terminated in 20, 2006, accused of stealing 13,000 pounds because the registrar didn't do it. Wow. So even in that year, the post office in Fujitsu, they, they didn't care. And that, even that year, 50 more peop, 51 more people got prosecuted just in that year alone for these, these, these thefts. What, what is, is this just like, a problem with British culture or something? Like, how could they, how could the post office prosecute people for stealing money when they're using reports from a buggy accounting system? I kind of have that answer. I did some like, research on that. I, I, are these I, just horrible, this. were these horrible people running the post office? Well, well, I think there's some of this, so like how it happened, right? So you have stubbornness, you have egos, 
There's billions of dollars involved. You have politics. I think it's all that. But based on my research, it's actually the way computer testimony is treated by UK law. Now, we might have to put those disclaimers at the end of the episode because I have no clue about US law. I don't know how this applies. But prior to 1984, so the dawn of the computer age, really, right? To submit computer evidence in court, you had to prove that the computer system basically was perfect. It was working accurately, had no errors. You had to prove that. But then in 1984, the laws changed. So in England and Wales, courts consider computers as a matter of law to which have been working correctly unless there's evidence to the contrary. Therefore, evidence produced by computers is treated as reliable unless other evidence suggests otherwise. It's the whole innocent until proven guilty applied to computers. Mm. Right? Well, yeah, so, so the well, you're... And in the case of evidence produced by a computer, you are guilty unless proven innocent. Yes. And so thousands of accusations and prosecutions happened because of this, the computer was right mentality. Wow. Think, and think about that. We all have clients. We have QuickBooks. We're syncing data in from different apps. Every time I turn around, some data is incorrect. Yeah. It, it, it's it's mind-boggling that is that it's at that. And you so, said you said people committed suicide. Pe- like, how much money was at stake in a lot of these cases? Oh, 50, 60, 100,000. These were they're they're cash register right shortages. But I mean, right? hundreds of thousands of pounds is a lot of money. Yeah. For probably one of these operators that was only making twenty thousand, twenty-five, whatever it might be. They're right? a small business yeah. owner. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so where does this bring us to today? So it's being called one of the biggest miscarriages of justice in British legal history. Um, And and the British have done a lot of bad things in the past. So that's that's pretty, (laughs) yeah. Um, Yeah. Currently there are settlements happening, payouts are happening, but even the payouts are introducing more controversy because they're determining, do they want to tax it? Should it be taxed? There's arguments about the taxation on the payouts. Um, People are being exonerated. So people are being let go of prison. As of January 10th, so this is two days ago, the Prime Minister, uh, Rishi Sunak, he announced new legislation, and I'll quote, unquote, to make sure those convicted are swiftly exonerated and compensated. Government officials said a bill would be introduced within weeks to grant an acquittal this year. And now criminal investigations may have started against the executives at the post office in Fujitsu. And there is an effort to roll out a new cloud-based point of sale to replace the Horizon system. But even that now, that rule has been delayed and hasn't happened. So the UK post office just had to write another check for 36 million pounds to Fujitsu and to keep them around until 2025. So bringing the total spent on Fujitsu's buggy software to 2.3 billion pounds. (laughs) This is that money going around, right? It's it's, it's money. It's like the money that uh, what California has put into its new accounting system that still doesn't work. So, I so for that. me, I think there's there's lessons here, right? Like, um, people suck. I mean, always. Well, yeah, that <laughs> is that. But I mean, I think you know, you can't assume that you have to work from the other way. Computers and tech are always wrong. Work from that direction, right? You have to sandy check stuff. Well, there's yeah. always bugs. There's the, always the, bugs. You got to think that people at the post office and people at Fujitsu knew that there were these bugs, and they knew that people were getting prosecuted. And they, somebody had to have connected this and figured it out and probably covered it up and didn't want to tell the truth because they'd done all this horrible stuff. They'd put people in jail. They'd ruin people's lives. Nobody wanted yeah. to, nobody wanted to clean it up. That's, in, in that's, probably, what, that's, be- yeah. 
in the beginning when maybe you discovered something was wrong, you could have took the right path. Right. And just admitted, oh, we signed a bad contract or we got bad yeah. software, it fixed the bug. Like nobody wanted to fix it. And just for decades, for a decade, let people be put in jail. Mm. Um, the other thing too is I think to take away is be part of communities. Apparently all these sub postmasters were kept in silos. So they had no idea all these other sub postmasters were being accused. Right. So, so be part of communities and, and, and know what your cohorts are going through. I feel like um, because of the – like this – a lot of this happened before social media, before community, yeah. online communities existed. I feel like now it would be harder for this to happen because people would get together and say, hey, we're not all stealing. <laughs> right? Yeah, and you see this like tax Twitter. You know, somebody's discovered something wrong in a pro – something wrong you see with the QuickBooks communities yeah. and everybody piles on. I've had that problem too. But yeah, this is, it's a very disturbing article. It yeah. really, or it's not even an article. There's lots of articles I pulled together. But uh, so if anybody wants to try to find the, the show, it's called Mr. Bates versus the Post Office is the four-part drama. But I don't think this is the end of this story, but it's, it's shockingly disturbing. This episode of the Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ClientHub. ClientHub is workflow software for taking your accounting firm to the next level. ClientHub is both amazingly powerful yet amazingly simple. With tax season in full swing, you need tools to work efficiently, keep clients happy, and help your firm run smoothly. ClientHub helps manage your firm's workflow, track time, triage email, get e-signatures, and more. My favorite feature is the AI built-in that saves tons of time. ClientHub can automatically draft email replies to common client questions, and the new Magic Workflow creates detailed task checklists and instructions for any new client work or unusual requests. Beyond the amazing AI, ClientHub's seamless client collaboration makes it easy to resolve QuickBooks uncategorized transactions. The simple modern interface means your team can start using ClientHub in no time, and with mobile apps, tracking tasks and communicating with clients is easy for everyone on your team. It's even easy for clients too. To start your free trial of ClientHub's amazingly powerful yet amazingly simple workflows, head over to accountingpodcast.promo slash clienthub. That is accountingpodcast.promo forward slash C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B. Thanks, everyone, who's joined us live today. We've got Giles Pearson in the live stream from Accountess, normally in New Zealand, so he doesn't get to join us live, but he's here in the States, and he said, finally get to listen in a sensible time zone and not at 6 a.m. on a Saturday. Well, actually, yeah, if you get up early, you can listen to us. And So thanks, Giles, for tuning in. Um, it was great. We went for a hike the other day because he was in, uh, in Phoenix. Doopy Doo says, should PCAOB or SEC offer bounties to firms for discovery of fraud? Worth considering. I think that um, at, at, at a minimum, they should be hired and paid by someone other than who they are auditing. Think about health inspectors in your local city who inspect restaurants. Would you want the restaurants hiring those health inspectors? Or do you want the city hiring those health inspectors? Just think about that. That's a good analogy. That's a great one. Yeah. Because if, if, you, if you had it set up the way that we have it set up, uh, what would happen is that only a tiny percentage of restaurants would ever fail inspection, and it would have to be like something truly horrendous. And the rest would be getting away with you know having rats in the kitchen because the auditors didn't see them, because the auditors don't want to see them. And uh, the same is true for building inspections. And yeah, have, exactly. We'd have buildings falling over all the time yeah. if it wasn't, if, um, if we ran it like that. 
Regarding the 150-hour rule and the survey that we talked about, Tyler says, I love having the work experience replace the extra hours, but the work experience shouldn't be a factor of working for a CPA. Many have gone the corporate route and have only worked for expired CPAs. Yeah, I think that's a problem is that to get the experience, you have to have like a CPA sign-off on your experience. We need to fix that too. And that's not really talked about. Um, because it can be really hard if you aren't in public accounting to find a CPA to sign off on your hours. And now even in public accounting, because firms are promoting non-CPAs to manager, it's really hard <laughs> oh, to get, to mean, it can be hard to get the hours there. Yeah. So we need to fix that. And it should be, it just should be experience in a role that's appropriate that you can prove. It shouldn't have to be, why do you have to be working for a CPA? I feel like that rule was just created to like force people to go work for CPAs so CPAs would have more labor. Um, Possible man crab says, but what is an appropriate amount of additional work experience? Will someone really want to wait the extra time for their license? So the old rule was two years of experience, 120 hours of education. I support offering that again because it swaps the year of education back for a year of experience. Um, I mean, if you're going to work in accounting to get two years of experience is not that hard, right? I think it could even be three. I think that would be an appropriate amount. I believe for the certified management accountant, it is three years of experience in a relevant role. Alex said, I'm not sure about other states, but here in Louisiana, the 30 extra credit hours do not even have to be in business, much less accounting. Insanity. Yes, it is insanity. Uh, but the people who put this in place are the ones in charge today, and they don't want to admit they made a mistake. And that is the sad truth. And actually, that's just like what David was talking about with the post office. I bet you it's the the people who started prosecuting these cases didn't want to admit that they'd really screwed up. And that's how really bad things happen in this world. All right, and they probably kept the police in the and the police didn't know. Yeah. Right? The police probably They thought they were, were doing their job. Going off the evidence. Yeah. yeah. Um they probably feel horrible now. Here's something related to the talent shortage. Ongoing concern. The headline is there are only two firms in Wyoming that can do government audits and one can't do its job because of staff shortages. Yeah. They found this in the Sheridan Press. The city of Sheridan and Sheridan County's fiscal year 2023 audits will come in after the state-mandated deadline. Both the city and county utilize the services of Porter, Murhead, Cornea, and Howard, PMCH, a certified public accountant based in Casper, for their audits. The firm works with the local governments to compile information for the audit throughout the year. Holding up the audit this year, Duff said is a short staffing at PMCH and as the firm competes with other accounting firms across the nation for employees. So basically, the city and the county aren't going to have their audits done on time because of short staff. They're short staffed over at the accounting firm. It's been delayed previously for the same reason. And there are only two accounting firms in the entire state of Wyoming that do government audits. So we're starting to see the talent shortage really impact small uh, town America, right? Main Street, yeah. America. And it's going to continue to do so. We also saw a report recently that mid-sized auditing firms are pulling back from public company audits because of increased PCAOB inspection. This is in the Financial Times. In 2023, several mid-sized U.S. accounting firms withdrew from auditing public companies due to a lack of new recruits and a stricter regulatory environment. This led to smaller companies struggling to find new auditors before the end of the financial year. Who are we talking about? Ide Bailey, 
a top 20 accounting firm, and Clifton Larson Allen, another top 20 firm, both ceased auditing listed financial services companies. They cited the significant investment needed to serve public company clients as a reason for their withdrawal. And as auditors are well aware, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the auditors of the auditors, have increased their enforcement of audit standards under the Biden administration, which means more inspections imposing record fines on accounting firms. And so the firms are like, you know what? Audit was never really our most profitable line of business anyway, at least in recent years. So let's just drop it and we'll do consulting instead. So it's it's interesting, right? You have this, I think, well-meaning approach of we're going to increase audit quality by regulating audit harder. But in this case, I don't think that regulation is the answer. More regulation is not the answer because it's regulation that got us into this problem in the first place. There is actually too much regulation. There are too many rules around audits that have made audits essentially meaningless because they are mostly check the box activities and they're not about the true economic situation at the business. And so you come down hard on auditors, the firms will just say, you know what, we'll do something else because the profit has been sucked out of this because it's a check the box, pass fail system that doesn't create a lot of value for investors and for businesses themselves. So we've gotten ourselves into this situation with regulation and like you have said in previous episodes, David, it might be time just to burn it down and start afresh. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if there's a better way to end this episode. It's a little. I think that's good. Uh, we are past our time for today. We have exceeded the requirement for CPE. As a reminder, you can earn free CPE for listening to this episode. You made it all the way through. You listened to me drone on about audits. You listened to David talk about a massive I would call it a fraud, a fraud on the postal workers in the UK. You deserve CPE credit, continuing professional education. You can get it for listening to this episode. Download the Earmark app on the Apple App Store or the Android Google Play Store. Just search for Earmark. Download the free app, create an account, find this episode. We put out the courses about a week after the episode drops. And you can so take a quick quiz and you can earn free CPE. So I'm driving up to Phoenix. It's like a two-hour drive. I'm not a CPA, so I don't need CPE, but I can listen to this podcast in my car, and then when I pull over to park, I can just quickly take the quiz and get my CPE. Yeah, that's it. And we had a listener write in who said, I have been earning CPE this year already on my commute. And you could be done with your CPE requirement before December even rolls around if you get the earmark out. Now you can at this time, earn a free CPE every week. You don't have to pay a cent. But if you want to support our work and the development of the app, please do consider subscribing. Um, we will uh, honor your subscription price for now. So like, you'll get the lowest price because it goes up every year. And we're going to be adding premium content. We have Earmark webinars now that I host where you can get actionable AI tips. So far, those have been free, but we're going to make some of them premium. So Subscribe now, lock in the low annual price. It's only $139 a year for unlimited self-study CPE. And uh, you're going to get great content and help us support uh, the work. Last year, we issued, I don't remember how many, was it 37,000 CPE certificates? To date. Seven or 39, yeah. To date, since we started this company. You know, we've been offering CPE now for like two years. We have issued over 50,000 CPE certificates. 
So I want to make that 100000 this year. And uh, I want to make CPE accessible and affordable to everyone, easy, uh, high quality. So thanks to everyone who has supported us. We're at over uh, 2,500 paid subscribers now. That's all I got. I will see you in about three hours. Oh, yeah. We're going to meet up for a happy hour. Dinner. Team team dinner. So uh, thanks, everyone who joined us. I hope you are having a great January so far. And you can write us if you want to tell us about anything we missed. uh, Tell us how busy season is going. Let us know a story we should cover. Tell us what you think about what we say on the show. If you're an auditor and you're pissed off about me dishing on audit all the time, I want to hear from you because you're all so quiet. Like, I assume you agree with me. I'm going to actually take a negative confirmation approach to that. Because I don't hear any of you complaining about what I say, I'm going to assume you think I'm right. And if you think I'm wrong, you should email me at the accounting podcast at earmark.me and uh, tell me what you think. I would love to interview you and uh, you know get another perspective. The only auditor we've ever talked to on this show who has lots of experience is Jerry McGinnis, uh, who was the Philadelphia KPMG managing partner. Um, I want to talk to more, but... It's funny, too, because there's, like, so many audit partners in this country. There's, like, thousands of them, but they're all, like, very quiet. Is that just the nature of auditors or audit partners? They just stay stay out of the limelight? Tell me who they're I should talk to. They're busy doing the audit. They're busy doing the audit. I want to talk to them. I want to find out, like, what's the, what's the truth? Is this right? Because it doesn't look good. If I'm an outsider, uh, I, I don't think audits look great. It's not a good situation. It's not headed in the right direction. It's not any better than it was before Enron. I think I'll end it there. Bye, everyone. Bye, David. Bye. Time for the classifieds. Want to make learning QuickBooks Online a breeze for your staff or clients while pocketing some extra cash? RoyalWise.com's Owls platform is the perfect solution with over 100 hours of in-depth QuickBooks training content spanning more than 40 topics. Join the partner program and become a vital link in the education chain. Share custom affiliate links with your bookkeeping team and small business clients and see the rewards roll in with every successful referral. You're not just earning cash, you're connecting your network to valuable CP credits and lessons led by one of Ignition's top 50 women in accounting, Alicia Katz. Enhance your service offerings and earn with each referral. Join today, royalwise.com slash partner. That's royalwise.com slash partner. Stop settling for slow payments and say hello to the future of AR with Forwardly. Accounts that use Forwardly can receive payments in less than 22 seconds. Yes, under 22 seconds via the newly launched FedNow network. And if your bank or a client's bank doesn't yet use FedNow, Forwardly will send the payment via same-day ACH for free. To get paid in under 22 seconds, go to forwardly.com. That's forwardly.com. Are you in the New York City area or want an excuse to travel to New York City? Join LiveFlow and Oh My Fraud podcast host Greg Kite for a one-day event in New York City at the LiveFlow office. Greg will show you how to take control of your career, learn how to become more entrepreneurial, and become more influential in the accounting industry, all while earning CPE credits. This in-person event takes place January 31st at 9 a.m. Eastern. To save your seat, head to www.liveflow.io slash events slash Greg dash Kite dash event. That's www.liveflow.io slash events slash Greg dash Kite dash event. 
Looking for an amazing and intimate conference experience this fall? Join Hector Garcia, CPA, in his second annual Reframe Workshop on October 24th to 26th, 2024 at the stunning Oceanfront Diplomat Resort in Hollywood, Florida. The theme this year is Influential Conversations for Accountants. Come share and collaborate with 200 other accounting pros that want to level up the way they communicate their value and become more influential with their conversations. Go to reframe2024.com to get your ticket with early bird pricing through February 28th. Last year, the conference sold out early, so head to reframe2024.com to get your early bird pricing. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.